This podcast is brought to you by MedCloud. Get connected, cyber safe. Hi, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Vanguard podcast, where I have the great pleasure of speaking to inspiring, innovating, and just really interesting people who I want to learn more about and get to know their life stories. And today's guest is no different. Ian Moore is the Chief Executive Officer at the Fire Industry Association, who started his career with the Royal Navy and then became an officer in the Sultan of Oman's Armed Forces, responsible for a number of high-technology weapon systems on board several ships. After leaving the Navy, Ian started his career in fire safety, working in Taiwan, the Middle East for global organisations, and then in 2000, moving back to the UK and receiving the DTI Millennium Award for Innovation for one of his solutions and the Queen's Award for Innovation in 2013 for video smoke detection, which is world-renowned and manufactured by many global companies. Ian now sits at the pinnacle of the fire industry, being the Chief Executive Officer of the Fire Industry Association. And during his time as CEO, Ian has rapidly developed relationships with all key stakeholders, and he's very well known for his commitment to fire safety and his representation of the SME business community. Last year, he chaired the BSI Annual Fire Conference and was voted the most influential person in fire safety by his peers. Ian, thanks so much for joining me today on the Vanguard Podcast. Good morning. Really appreciate your time this morning. And and I've just done a very brief intro as to your career, where you've been, where you've gone to, and what you're doing now. But what I'd really love to do to start off the podcast so the listeners get to know Ian more is... Tell us about the diverse and interesting background you've had, starting from your first part of your career, which was the Royal Navy. Then you went on to become a weapons officer in the Sultan of Oman's armed forces. I'd love to know what led you to the Royal Navy and and that journey through through that period of your life. I think what drove me to to look at this little bit of stability, to be honest, I, I ended up going to about 13 schools, and this is purely because my my father had itchy feet. The grass was always greener. We were moved and moved, and I got to sort of stage when um, I thought I, I want to sort of have a little bit more of a stable life. My future brother-in-law at that time was in the Navy doing an artistic apprenticeship, and I thought, well, I can go in the Navy, learn a trade, have a bit of fun, see a few things, travel the world a bit, and then come out with a skill set. So it fitted everything for me. So I joined at the sweet age of 16, very early, and just after my 16th birthday as well. It was fantastic. The first year was really tough, I must be honest. I mean, it's not like it is today when they worry about health and safety. This is your classical movie stuff when you get battered for even looking the strange way at somebody and a very, very rough introduction to life. But I I kind of enjoyed it. And what helped me, I think, was sort of getting involved in a little bit of boxing and stuff like that as well and start to develop as a character. Yeah, that that was a good start. And then the education's very good in the Navy. Literally one year was at one base and you learn a bit of everything, mechanical engineering, electrical engineering, and you find your trades and you advance it to sort of degree level eventually. So a very good education background. And then they uh, shove you on a ship and then you, you know enough to be dangerous when you go on a ship. Uh, my first ship was HMS Sheffield, which unfortunately is at the bottom of the South Atlantic, sunk in the Falklands. I'm glad to say I wasn't on it at the time, uh, but that was my first ship. I went back to do a little bit more training and specialised in a particular weapon system called the 4.5-inch Mark 8 gun. And this is a massive gun on the front of the ship that basically has a little bit of everything, as in logic systems, hydraulics to drive engines and motors on it. So you get a bit of all trades and you learn a lot of things. 
Uh, and I took over the gun on the Glasgow when I was 21 and had a section of about 20 people working for me in different areas, depends on whether it's action stations or just normal things. And then I spent about 10 weeks back in my home port in two and a half years. And I started to wish away days and I promised myself I'd never wish away a day again. So I thought, OK, this is time for me. Uh, and it was getting towards nine years now. So I put my notice in and the Sultan Man's forces immediately contacted me because I was weapons specialist and uh, asked me if I'd like to join their forces and become an officer in the, in the Omani forces. I thought, yep, that sounds like fun. So off to Italy to do some training in La Spazia, out to Oman. And then we were working on all the ships there for about three years. It's sort of the late days of the Iran-Iraq war days when they were bombing tankers in the Straits of Hormuz. So it was pretty busy times. Yeah, and I, I got to about three years. And um, unfortunately, when you put yourself in situations of the odd shell coming your way and the odd bit of danger, you're thinking, what am I doing here? I got to the ripe old age of 30, thinking maybe it's time to change careers. Uh, so, But I enjoyed it immensely. I mean, it's, it, I cannot recommend it enough to anybody. And I'm absolutely chuffed the fact my, my son's just been accepted into Sandhurst as to start his training as an officer there. The family traditions carry on. My dad was forces as well. Yeah, that's kind of a broad background to it. Wow. It's an amazing story for me, who's got an interest in military, never been in the military, by the way. A couple of things that really interest me, which I could dig deeper into. One is at 21 years old, you had 20 of arguably the roughest and most independent people around reporting into you at 21 years old. How did that change you? How did that set you up for your career as in moving into, you know, the fire industry and also your career now? You know, at 21 years old, all I wanted to do is go and play cricket and chase girls. Well, I did that as well. Yeah, of course. <laughs> yeah, it was. I was very sports orientated. But the way the military structure does protect you to some way, and the fact that the rank you have at the time, people do afford you respect on, on occasions. My secret to all of that, the, the way it worked for me, was knowing more than other people. And you have to work harder. And I, I looked like I was about 16 when I was 21. I looked really, really young and often questioned if they had stolen somebody's uniform, like a Doogie Howser type character, you know. <laughs> yeah, I know. Yeah, I had to work harder. Uh, I had to be smarter. I'm the guy that's there late into night still studying. Uh, and that eventually comes across that you don't have to shout and yell at people. You just have to be the person they refer to and everybody then comes to you and then you need things information wise or how do I do this? So it becomes reasonably straightforward when you have the knowledge to guide people in the right direction. And again, the Navy trains you well. You know, I went to leadership training schools, put you under extreme pressure to take people through things, even when they're exhausted, um, they don't want to do things and they deliberately incite those people as well to argue back and you have to deal with it. So you are professionally trained to lead. Again, I go back to anybody joining the military. I think it's an absolutely fantastic foundation for anything in life. I, I couldn't agree more. And speaking to a lot of the people I know that have been in the military say the same thing. And it, it also touches on a couple of points that we learn in our careers, and that is earning the respect of your peers and your your team, but also the ability of working with the team and being able to manage and work with a team of all different demographics and all different backgrounds and personalities and ages. It's almost like the corporate world can learn so much from the military world, can't they? Yeah, I, I totally agree. 
it even went wider when I went to the Oman forces because, needless to say, most of the crews on the ships and the bases were Omanis, which, by the way, is probably the most wonderful group of individuals I've ever met in my life. It's so kind as a nation. It's quite extraordinary. Um, but we also had Sri Lankans there doing the small arms, Indians and Pakistanis doing various engineering works, phenomenally skilled, but so different culturally. And, of course, the you do learn how to be tolerant. You, know, you don't preconceive anything. You don't look at somebody and, and make your mind up. Maybe I'll talk about it a little bit later. This has led on to me, for instance, being a, a magistrate sitting in court. Uh, and that's a great skill set. You don't suppose somebody just by looking at them. You just wait for them to speak, listen to see what they have to say. And it is quite surprising sometimes if everybody took the patience just to listen to somebody for a couple of minutes before they make their opinions. I think people will be very, very surprised and have a better life for it. Absolutely agree. Gone are the days of the old VP of sales screaming at you for not hitting your number. Actually learn about the person first and understand it may be a culture, it may be their health, it may be their background, it may be something that you're doing that's not helping them to to help them succeed. Yeah, I mean, the little thing, little tips you pick up as you go along, and, and this will resonate with any good managers. If you explain something to somebody and they look at you, uh, my first thought, and it seriously is, it's not just a line, it's to say, maybe I didn't explain that well enough. In other words, it's probably me that hasn't explained that to you, what I want. Because if you don't understand, then I haven't put it across clearly. And I think if you start from that position, it's usually a little bit easier to get on in life. Absolutely agree. Really well said. So from the Omani forces and being a weapons officer, and then all of a sudden you've got into sales in the fire industry with Chubb, and that's led to where you were, you know, a lot of innovation, invention, awards, careers, different roles, different countries. And we'll talk about countries and cultures and so forth in a minute. But how did you get into the fire industry? And, and what was that leap from the armed forces into that industry and, and in sales? I basically finished in, in Oman. I say I got to the stage when I thought, okay, that's enough, and went back. I was working in a bar, actually. A friend of mine owned a bar, and it's the bar I met my wife in, actually. <laughs> but um, And it was like a show bar. So for about four or five months, I used to get up on the stage and tell jokes and work on the cocktail bar and everything else. So life was just drifting on, having fun. Um, and this is your chasing women and cricket thing. But then I thought, well, I need to find myself a serious job and get on with life and picked up the newspaper. And I always tell people I misread the advert. I thought it said firearms, which is my comfortable area, but it actually said fire alarms. And it caught my eye because of it. And I, I remember reading it. That was a transition. It was almost like an accident. And, and I, I read this advert. And I thought, yeah, I can do all that. That sounds like fun. It was like a regional sales manager for Chubb, which is quite a famous brand over here, as you know looking at systems, which is all the bigger projects ending above 50,000. They had one for North, one for South. And these are like the senior salespeople that took on the big contract. So that's kind of how I got into it. Uh, went up for the interview. Even the interview was a fascinating experience because I've never had an interview before. So um, I asked them straight away, have I got the job? And they kind of looked at me strangely and said, um, we'll let you know. I went, well, surely you know now. <laughs> and uh, I, I I didn't get the understanding and uh, I was just told to go away and come back later. And uh, they said, yes, you've got the job. You know, when, when do you want to start? So I'll start on Monday. Let's get going. So uh, and an absolutely fascinating career I've had through being in that field as well. But 
all started almost like a, an accident of, of misreading an advert. That's fantastic. Which brings us into the next part. You you then travelled to, uh, you're in the UK, then you travelled to Taiwan and you've been in Dubai in the Middle East and you've spent some time in Australia. And, you know, one of the things that, that I noticed in the CV and obviously speaking to people who know you is you've lived half your life overseas and your career, you know, the career overseas. I have constant conversations with young people, whether it's my son, his friends, kids at the cricket club, kids at the football club, uh, just general conversations about what am I going to do after school? Am I going to go to university? Where should I go to university? Most likely it's away from mum and dad so I can get some independence. My son, for instance, wants to go to university in Melbourne or Perth, which I'm a massive fan of. I've now spent almost 20 years of my life living away from home. I've had the most wonderful life of traveling predominantly to Southeast Asia, North America, and around Europe. And I think travel, being away from home, learning to be independent, learning all the different cultures is something that's built me to the person I am today. Love to get your feedback on that and and what you think of being overseas, living internationally, and experiencing all those different cultures. No, I can completely resonate with that. It didn't come through a, a desire to do. I'm mean, obviously the Navy gives you a taste of it by traveling around and all through North America, Iceland, uh, Greenland, going to the poles. Very lucky with the traveling. Uh, and Oman, as he'd been based out there, I did a lot of traveling from there as a hub. So I saw a lot of sort of the the, uh, the northeast of Africa, India, around that way as well. But the work took me uh, and an opportunity came up and, I, and I'd never really thought about it. And we just got married and I got an offer to move to a company called Cerberus, which is now Siemens. It was go to, to Taiwan and decide, literally come out the airport, go left, go right, set up an office uh, and establish a business there. Uh, and culturally, it's quite extraordinary. Taiwan in those days, nothing was in English. Even the restaurants, we used to have to point to people's foods and things and uh, it was it was tough, you know, in a way that probably more for my wife than for me. I mean, I was working, so but she was like at home trying to develop a life. But yeah, I worked in an office full of Chinese people uh, in, in Taipei. They are completely different uh, and their culture. But you soon get into it and you just basically you know, become one of them. You still become exactly what you are, which is, uh, you know, I am 100% English and uh, I don't think that will ever change. Um, but you learn to understand, you culturally change things, you know when to bow your head and, and be quiet sometimes when they consider the status is higher or lower or yeah, all these different things. And, and it was an absolutely wonderful experience to walk away doing that for three years. To, and it, it blossoms your mind to, to understand about things. And the whole world then suddenly feels at your feet. As you mentioned, that I moved then to Dubai. And that's where our son was born. So our, our daughter's born in Taiwan. So we always say she's made in Taiwan. Should have that tattooed on her somewhere, made in Taiwan. And, then, and Ethan, our son, was born in Dubai. So we are a multicultural family by that background alone. Absolutely, my son now is he hears all these stories about the traveling and the sailing we do around the world. Branch offices in America, and we had factories in, in China, uh, as, as you say, Australia, and I've been to all places around the globe. I've been absolutely blessed with traveling. You, you do sometimes get a little bit tired when it's when it's packed too heavily. For young people, that's the time to do it because you're bouncing with enthusiasm. Um, and when you get a little bit older, you you think twice about a long haul flight to somewhere. And but business takes you that way. 
Uh, I'm a great believer in face-to-face meetings, and this is why the last year has been pretty tough, as you can probably imagine, for everybody. But I think for people like myself, and there's a lot of us that are quite gregarious, I like being in front of people, talking to people, and, you know, I always used to joke to people, I do my best work in the bar, you know. <laughs> yeah, for sure. back, relaxing, just chatting. That, that's where, you know, I formed unbelievably strong relationships in business, which I, I can talk about later about where I am now, what I'm doing. But that, that was an unbelievably great foundation for that it just makes you a better person i mean whether it makes you better professionally i think it does but i would say that but i think as a personal sort of journey to use that good old phrase it's been incredible to to have traveled all around the world and met so many wonderful people and i'm incredibly tolerant of every shape and size of person and i don't prejudge and i see these isms leveled at so many people with the modern way of trying to put you into a bracket of not liking something I am so alien to that, it's unbelievable, because I've actually lived and breathed those experiences. So I would never be accused of being anything apart from a bloke um, living his life. Couldn't agree more. You know, one of the things that that resonates for me there is when I first came over, you know, I I was lucky enough, a bit like you, you had a job, you could get into Taipei, but obviously you didn't know whether to turn left, turn right, you know, where you're going to live, all that kind of stuff. I was very lucky enough that when I came over here, I had someone pick me up from Heathrow. I had a house to live in. I had a job for six months. So I was very lucky in that way. However, what it did do was at the end of six months, you've got nothing. What are you going to do? You've got a ticket home. No, I don't want to do that. I want to show people that I can do this. So that independence, I think, gives you a target or a North Star to aim at to you know, try and improve yourself, try and take it one step further. And, and when you said about learning about different cultures, and you know, I come from a little place in Melbourne, and yes, we had a lot of immigration after the war, which quite frankly, if we didn't have it, Australia wouldn't be the fantastic place it is now. So we were very open to different cultures, open to different dialects dialects and and foods. And so I was very lucky and I agree with you completely. You know, it gives you that sense of independence. It gives you that sense of freedom, but it also gives you that sense of accomplishment. And I think as as someone coming out of school, you want to have that North Star and that North Star is to to show people what you can do, but more importantly, show yourself what you can do. NetCloud. Get connected. CyberSafe is our mantra. From tailored, managed security solutions to our next-generation cloud platform, MetCloud will drive your organization forward and help it thrive. You can keep up to date with us in all things cybersecurity by following us on Twitter at MetCloud underscore com. We're also on LinkedIn and YouTube. You can find the links to our social media pages and blogs via our website, metcloud.com. data had a sound, it could be this, the sound of important and sensitive information leaking out of your business. MedCloud, get connected, cyber safe.
So I, I guess it takes us up to modern times to a certain extent, and it, I'd love to know a little bit about what you're doing now in regards to the chief executive of the Fire Industry Association about fire safety. We had the horrible, horrible, horrible tragedy a few years ago of Grenfell, and I think that brought the fire industry into everyone's household. You know, maybe from an awareness point of view, people are now starting to understand that keep your batteries up to date in your fire alarms. You know, you do have fire alarms, CO2 detectors, all those type of things in your house nowadays. But what do you think something like a tragedy like that can do to an industry? And also, is there any innovation or products now that everyday households should be aware of coming on the market to ensure that those things never happen again and we are really fire safe within our homes and our offices these days? A number of questions there. I'll try and pick it off. But I mean, my, my very first thought will always be back to Grenfell. Although everybody felt you know terrible about it, please trust me with anybody working in that industry that sees that so often, it, it was soul destroying. It was it's, it's hard to explain. It, it, you see like the 9-11 buildings going down and various things that happen in life. And to me, that was the most devastating thing I've ever seen. And, uh, and unfortunately, because of my trade, I've been involved in a lot of those types of incidents when you go to tower blocks and, and see what's happening. And, and I've been lecturing um, on fire safety for an enormous amount of time now because I absolutely believe in it. Yes, it was my job. I'll keep the innovation to one side because um, I've been lucky enough to win the Queen's Award for Innovation for, for something for fire, which I'll talk a little bit more in a minute, because that links into what I see as a vision going forward. But um, yeah, I mean, it, it will affect everything and everybody. There's absolutely no doubt about that in the industry, uh, but it will affect everybody then eventually in public. All these things that happen from the Hackett Report, uh, and I have meetings every single day to do with the changes that are happening, and we're changing the fire safety bill, the building safety bill, and there's one word that comes up that in, I don't think I've been to a meeting in two and a half years that doesn't say the word confidence. Danger Judith Hackett, when she did her report, which is an independent report, post Grenfell to say about it, 150 times in that report the word confidence was used, and one of the problems, people become lapsadaisical. It's like it's like you live in your house. If you don't have a fire in your house, you don't think about the dangers of fire. The only people that tend to sort of react to it are those that have seen the effects of it uh, and those that it's happened to before. So when you talk about smoke detectors in homes, if people don't have smoke detectors working, working in their house, I go mad at them. I really do. And, and I do not hold back in my insults to them putting their children at risk and, and people staying in their house at risk. I don't hold back on, on being quite offensive towards them, that they are putting everybody at risk uh, by not, you know, by almost being lazy because they are so cheap. They're, they're nothing. You know, there are a couple of pints of beer now, fit a good smoke alarm in the house. All fire systems are all about is about time. That's what they're about. They're, they're, they're not there to design to stop fires happening because they always will happen. Because humans are involved. You know, if you didn't have humans in a building, you wouldn't have fires, almost certainly, because you, you build the risk around anything that heated up. You'd have it enclosed, et cetera, et cetera. But we bring things into the environment. We leave chip pans on. We leave uh, hair curlers, not that I need them, <laughs> on the side and uh, various other things that we do. We, we wire things badly. So there will be fires and there will continue to be fires. But what smoke detectors do in the house, they give you time to get out and 
if your house burns down, disappointing, uh, you're distraught, but hey, you're alive, you know. You're out there to tell the story, you've got insurance, it'll be rebuilt, uh, and a year later you almost forget about the whole thing. You may lose a few memories, but you've got, you've got your, your health. And this is the main thing that anybody, every design of every fire alarm system is to efficiently get somebody out of the building to look from the outside and then they're safe. And um, it is irresponsible. And uh, I'm, not, I'm not a campaigner. I don't sell these things, by the way. But it's irresponsible no, no. for anybody not to have a working and tested, regularly tested, working fire system even if it's a domestic small smoke alarm fitted in their house at the right place, uh, it, it's, a, it's irresponsible not to. My um, soapbox, but I've seen too many incidents <laughs> over the years that, that lead me to be that way. No, and, and justifiably so. You know, I was just going to say re- regarding the smoke alarm bit is that I, I completely agree with you. I've heard of a couple of instances where there's been chip fires in the kitchens, the smoke alarm's gone off, and things have been able to be under control very quickly. If it hadn't have been, it would have been a completely different story. So um, I'm, I'm 100%, and I'm glad we can use this vehicle to, to share those, those tips because if it saves one life or if it saves one house or whatever, it's been completely worthwhile having a conversation, right? Yeah, I like to think so. I mean, if somebody listens to this and thinks, I'll just go and check my smoke alarm, there'll be that one occasion that in, in somebody's life, they'll never regret that decision. Yeah, absolutely agree. You had one more one more point you were going to make on that as well. Sorry, I interrupted you. It, it's okay. I was just going to drift in. You, you asked about innovation in different areas. Uh, and I've, I've got a very close mind on this. I, I put to market uh, with a team of very smart people a system called video smoke detection. And this basically uses image processing of standard CCTV and actually will decide if there's smoke or flames in the view. And it, it became a business that um, that I ran for many, many years. And we were lucky enough to win that Queen's Award for innovation. And that's always pushed me on to look for other um, innovative solutions to, to problems. The domestic one is always difficult. I think the latest thing really is probably about connecting things. The Internet of Things is changing everything so rapidly. In fact, in my organization, which I'll tell you a little bit more about in a minute, has actually got a study ongoing right now on Internet of Things. And it just shows you how you can link everything in your house to, to a central system. And they don't have to be expensive. These are not, you know, megaly expensive, state-of-the-art Bill Gates house type things. You know, you put a smoke detector up, you make sure they talk to each other on different floors, and you can do that through your internet if you want to. Mostly they're hardwire linked on some areas because of regulations, but it's also about how you use that information, how you get that message across. Why can't you get a, you know, your phone ringing when the smoke detector goes off so you know that something's happening, so you may be able to deal with it in a slow building. You, you have the opportunity to do something about it. You can build technology into all your plug sockets that if they overheat to a certain degree, they will switch it off because obviously that is the power source, is the heat source, which is inevitably going to turn into a fire at some point. So there's a number of things you can start looking at to use in your house, and they're not overly expensive because of the pure volume of domestic dwellings that people can put these into. And people are getting wise to it. I mean, you look at Wales now, for instance, every domestic property has to have sprinklers now when they're being built. Um, it's happening in different areas of Scotland. Uh, we're having it in flats we're talking about. And there's also some really innovative solutions to putting water into flats as well. It uses the mains water, so you don't have to have a, a separate system. 
And uh, we work with a couple of our members on trying to get their products to market. And I think the biggest issue we always have with innovation is it's a very established market for fire, very traditionalist, big bells, levers, red lamps. And I, I totally get that because it's life safety. So you have to go through the, the ringer very, very heavily to get your products to market. It's an awful lot of investment needs to be done. You've just got to hold your nerve and keep going and try and find people to back you as you develop these things. Uh, but eventually, technology will overtake traditional statutes. And we constantly try to help people get to that stage. So, um, yeah, a lot of exciting things out there at the moment. Yeah, for sure. And, and how likely are we to see that in the next few years? And if we are to see them in the next few years, like these sensors within plug sockets or, or those things you were talking about, is it down to, I don't know, developers saying, you know what, I'm building 100 homes, I'm having every single house in this development with these things, and then it'll just be the mass requirement and so therefore mass manufacture, therefore lower pricing. Do you think that's the way it's going to go? And what is the time frame? Because I think it's a wonderful innovation. I think it needs to come sooner rather than later. I mean, we have these, the phraseology we use is early adopters, and you do have builders that have a conscience, but there's some really, really good, responsible prime contractors and builders out there. And a lot of the stuff that I alluded to earlier with, with the Hackett report is not about the government mandating anything, because they won't. They, they have a, a history to cut red tape. That's what they decided. I'm not going to argue about policy of governments. But that also leads on to the fact that they very rarely mandate anything. It's quite extraordinary to think that anybody, even yourself now, can actually walk in. Even you go to the House of Commons, you could design the fire alarm system, you could install it, and you can maintain it for the next 10 years without any qualifications whatsoever. So what this report is about, the competency situation, is about industry growing up and looking after itself and the people at the top who are buying these buildings all the way down to the contractors and architects, they install to the next layer down. You have a responsibility to make this safe for people. And it's not about legally complying to this or legally complying to that. It's look at it all. Look look at the, the company. Is the company competent? As an example, as you've got third-party certification to give an indication that it's a professional company doing things the right way, you look at the individuals, are they qualified? Have they gone out of their way to learn their trade and not just have a go? And, and you start ticking these boxes. And, and a lot of the work we're doing with government is about looking at what looks good. If you're looking after a building, you're not a fire expert. So what do you need? So you need a, basically a tick-off list of these different things, starting with a very solid risk assessment of the building, and then make sure that you're using professional companies You've got certified products. You've got professional installers and maintainers. And all of a sudden, that bar on professionalism goes up and up and up. That's our holy grail. This is what we're heading towards it. Everybody is of that level. But we're going to get there. There is enough momentum post-Grenfell Tower to actually start pushing this. And it's happening in every single area of responsibility that people no longer say, well, this is the minimum I can get away with. It's like, how do I make these people safe? And people are asking that question. It's a wonderful topic to to touch on. And I think many, many, many of us really want to know more about it because it's not only the safety of our house, it's the safety of others around, it's the safety of our children, it's the safety of our families. So 
thanks for you know what the the FIA the Fire Industry Association does in that regard because I think we can all be thankful uh, regardless of if it's a, a an office block or a hotel we stay at or even our own homes I think what uh, you and your organization do is 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 wonderful and I I think all of us in the community should be thankful for it so thank thanks for your work on that which brings me to uh, my final question, and then we'll just get into our final three where I ask you a couple of quick fire questions. But finally, you know, as part of that FIA position that you're in, you're also a magistrate as well. Where do you find the time, Ian? Where do you find the time? Yeah, you can always find the time. I'm a, I'm a huge advocate of public service, and um, we can always find more time to do something. I mean, we all know that from what we take on in life. You know, there's always something more. And, um, I just, I don't, I, I'm just not one of those guys that sits down in the pub and moans about society and, and you know the whole place is going to rack and ruin. And, and I look at people, think, well, what are you actually doing about it then? And so there are certain things you can do to get involved. And, and I decided I want to be a magistrate because of that situation. You know, I've got my kids growing up in the local area. I see violence and I see um, burglaries in houses and the effects it has on in, in individuals. And not everybody is big, burly blokes in a house and thinking, I'll sort it out. You've got frail old people being burgled and somebody smashing their windows, and they're terrified. I thought, well, what can I do about that? You know, I can't join the police. I'm too old, and I've got another business uh, direction. So I decided to apply, and, and luckily for me, I've been doing this now for about five years. But, but I also ran a children's cancer charity as chair of the Board of Trustees for about five years as well. Um, I think everybody's been affected by cancer, so you know, and uh, and I'm I'm sad to say I've got some friends suffering from it, right, pretty badly at the moment as well now. But um, so do something about it, so you contribute. And my latest thing, I've just moved to a new village two months ago, and uh, I applied and got voted in to be on the council here. So I'm a, a local councillor in the parish council, and it's really about helping people and, and making sure they're all okay and putting in, in programs in to support people, especially through this COVID times when the isolation, you know, extremely lonely people out there at the moment that are still isolating because they're afraid of the consequences of coming out of the house. So that's what I joined the council to start working my local community and helping out. So everybody can find time to do it. I'll be honest with you. I am extremely busy and I'm always complaining about the hours I work, like 12 hours a day. It feels like five and a half days a week. And I do, but you know it's important. You also find time to give something back. I've had a fantastic, rich life, and I want to give something back. Fantastic. Well, I'm sure everyone in the village and the parish council and the area where you live and and the area that you serve as a magistrate are very thankful. And um, I, I think it's extremely honourable. And we're lucky we have people like you in our in our community. So thank you for 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 what you do. What I want to do is is finish off with our final three, and these are pretty quick fire questions. And the first one is, what do you wish you knew when you started your corporate career that you do now? What a cracking question. I think, I think we'd all like to go back to when you were a certain age and with the knowledge you have in your brain. I think I'd probably learn to work smarter. I think it's probably the best thing I can say is I've learned how to filter a lot of things that is fluff around the edges. And that's taken me a long time to get to. Being youthful growing up in business post the military, uh, it's always about, yeah, I can do that. I'll take that on. And an opportunity, it's like the next shiny thing. You know, you move straight to the next one, straight to the next one, and you're spinning plates all over the place and getting yourself so, so busy. 
I think I think the knowledge that I have now that I take back to those times was to really step back, take a breather, analyze what's in front of you, and then make a decision on your priorities a little bit better. I think in one word, prioritization. I like that. The second one that I, I, I really want to ask you, and I think it's quite pertinent for, for the different areas of, of the world and also the areas of business that you've been involved in, including public life, is do you have a mantra or a philosophy that you live by? I don't think I do. I think because of my, my traveling and my background and my wide experiences, I, I think I'm lucky that things come naturally to me. I am naturally kind to people. As I said to you before, I do listen to people. But my first thought in anything, and and I don't know anybody that knows me wouldn't probably agree with this. I'm sure some people wouldn't agree, but my friends wouldn't disagree. That uh, it is my first thought is to be kind to people, um, to do anything I can. And um, my friends will know that I'll do anything for them. And I think that is a, a good value in life, is really to, just to naturally be kind to people. But even, even in when you're driving, you know, I, I don't suffer from road rage. I'm lucky. I, I, don't, I don't get angry uh, very, very rarely. I can't remember the last time I was. But to me, it's really about being absolutely not laid back and lazy because I'm a very, very active, busy person. But just it, it's un, things that are unnecessary, you know, when – when you come to a sort of stalemate and you're head-on cars, you just back up and wave them through. You feel better for it. They feel better for it. What's, what's to lose by doing it? And unfortunately, these times of macho-ness and people being headstrong, just wanting to fight people all the time. And I see it in the boardroom as well. I see antagonistic people in the boardroom who just want to make a name for themselves at any cost. And whereas I've never been that person, I, I've, I've been quite laid back in the way that I listen. Uh, I'm nice to people get my point across. If they don't want to listen or don't agree, then I'm okay with that. We'll just move on to something else, you know. I think that's great. As we all get on, I've always been an angry young man. Um, As kids, life, maturity develops, I'm leaning more your side now, which which is a hell of a lot better for me, better for my heart, better for my health, better for my natural being. So uh, I agree with you. I think that's a great philosophy and I, I wish I had more of it. If you could change one thing in your industry, just one thing you had that magic wand, what would it be? In our industry, I'd like it to be a lot more professional. I think the individuals within it are truly professional. We have some incredibly skilled people working in our industry of fire safety. Um, But unfortunately, going with it, there's an awful lot of cowboys in our industry. One of the issues is with that, you, you just can't separate them. That's my biggest desire in our industry is really to raise that bar on professionalism and start insisting that people have the skill sets that they're meant to have to do their job. So um, that, that's what I'd say about what I'd, I'd change about my industry. Fantastic. I want to thank you so much for your time today. I think it's been insightful. I've really enjoyed listening to, dare I say, the using the word, the journey. Um, and I think the <laughs> listeners will really appreciate the work you do and, and, and certainly the public uh, service that you put back into the community. So on behalf of everyone, thank you so much and thanks for your time today. Uh, absolute pleasure Scott it's nice talking to you good on you thanks I really enjoyed speaking to Ian and learning about his journey from the military in the UK and the Middle East and then getting involved in the fire industry and how invention innovation and his work with the fire industry association is a passion but also a mission to improve fire safety in the UK Ian's life has taken him from a 16 year old sailor in the navy 
learning many life skills along the way, and then at 21, having a team of 20 sailors reporting into him. He says that by having such authority early on, he learnt that shouting or demanding got him nowhere, and it was all about gaining respect through hard work and teamwork that really got him through. He also lives by the philosophy of being naturally kind and just helping people, and it's something we all should live by today. Ian also said, step back, analyse, decide, and prioritise was one of his key philosophies, and I think that's also something that I'll certainly keep from this podcast. Thank you again, Ian, and I really enjoyed speaking to you and good luck in 2021 and beyond. Thanks, everyone, for listening to the Vanguard podcast. And remember, take care, stay safe, and keep on innovating.